We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host, Nick Filato. Free agency is coming, baby. It's nearing. It's on the way. We got a little news to talk about as far as free agency goes before we dive into tonight's NFL Draft Profile Series where we'll be profiling a player who I must have been tweeting about for the last, I don't know, I mean not consistently, but I probably tweeted about for the first time maybe 16 months ago as I was watching Justin Herbert at Oregon, quarterback prospect I was extremely intrigued by. And immediately, the person who caught my attention was one of his teammates. And that's who we're going to get to tonight. It's Panay Siwal. I don't know if that's exactly how to pronounce it. I'm sure I got it wrong. I knew I was never going to get it right. We'll see how Nick pronounces it. It's going to be a surprise to me, and then I'll go from there because I think he, for some reason, knows the correct pronunciation, judging by the look on his face. And we'll see if I got that right. But this is a player I've been excited to profile. This is a player I want to talk more about. And this is a player who I have way up my target list for the New York Giants. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about some NFL news that might affect the Giants. Because guess what? We're now what? A little more than two weeks away from the start of free agency. It is going to get exciting. Somehow the Giants aren't one of the teams who have started cutting players yet. I thought Golden Tate would get his walking players. That hasn't happened. But a player who the Giants were reportedly interested in last year's free agency has just become a free agency. And it's a weird one in my mind. So Kyle Vinoy, who is just one year into a $51 million contract, a four-year $51 million contract that had $30 million guaranteed. He signed it last offseason. The coaching staff remains the same on the defensive side of the ball. So that part is odd to me. He was released. So I'm going to ask you, Nick, because there's been a lot of dot connecting. Van Noy has spoken a ton of praise about Joe Judge. I think I saw a clip today. I think Bobby Skinner shared it. It was Van Noy talking about how much he respects, how much he likes Joe Judge as a coach. 
Obviously, on paper, Van Noy looks like a perfect fit for Patrick Graham's system, kind of to replace the Kyler Fackrell, who's also a free agent. Are you at all concerned by the fact that he was released um, one year into this massive deal, or are you all in, let's sign him, the Giants should be going after him? I wouldn't say I'm all in, the Giants should definitely be signing him, nor would I say that I am concerned about the fact that he was released. I mean, first and foremost, this is a business, we all know that. And for whatever reason, the contract that he was given, that $51 million, four years, Brian Flores looked at it. He knew who Kyle Van Noy was before signing him, but they feel that they're going to go in another direction. I don't think it's an indictment on Van Noy's character. And judging by what he was able to do on the field and that really, really solid defense that Miami had, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily an indictment on his skill set, but they just didn't want to allocate that contract to somebody who's going to be 31 come i think uh his birthday is in june so it's going to be before this season as for signing him to the giants man i mean i would welcome it but there's going to be a price tag and there's going to be other players or other teams i should say that are going to be interested in a player like kyle van noy i would imagine so i mean i would love it because there's a familiarity there but i don't necessarily know if it's in the giants range of outcomes given all the other needs that they do need to sign and the fact that they just spent four-ish, I guess you could say, because the guys are, uh, some of them are edges, four-ish draft picks on the linebacker position. I think you and I can agree that we want to upgrade over Tay Crowder, but I think the Giants are kind of high on Tay Crowder, and that's not necessarily an immediate priority, and I think Van Noy can find more in the open market. Yeah, it's interesting when it comes to Van Noy. I'm not so sure I would be totally on board with the idea the Giants are very high on Tay Crowder. I know he played a lot last year because that was kind of a production of the fact that they didn't have any assets really to play that position they you saw what happened when they put Devonte downs and david mayo on the field just two jags who shouldn't really be playing snaps um but as far as van noy goes i do find it a little odd that he was released one year into a 50 million dollar contract that he signed last season four years and again it's not like they're changing defensive systems it's not like they didn't understand his cap situation or his age when they made the decision to sign him last offseason. So it is going to be a red flag for me to some degree because I just don't you don't see this happen a lot unless there's a coaching change on the defense side of the ball or injuries. Now, that's the one thing that might be coming into play here because although Vinoy was super productive in his first year with the Dolphins, it seemed like he was a really good fit for Brian, Brian Flores. He had six sacks, 10 tackles for loss, which are career highs for him six pass to pass breakups those are really big time numbers the Giants would love to have that kind of production at the second level like you said either in place of Tay Crowder or in some cases in place of um Kyler Fackrell depending on the down and distance I am surprised that he was released and he says he played played through a really painful hip injury during the season um it caused him to even spend a night in the hospital after a game he felt like he was a captain of that team one of the leaders of that defense so he was really disappointed and i'm sorry he was a captain of that team he felt like he was one of the leaders of the, de- the defense he was really disappointed he voiced his frustration on twitter so it's not like this was completely expected for van Noy. i think it was a surprise for him completely now the dolphins will get some salary cap space back here but it's not really anything crazy because again this is one year into a massive deal so i don't know man i think that 
either they view Andrew Van Ginkle, former Wisconsin Badger, by the way, who is awesome. He had five and a half sacks and seven, seven tackles for loss himself last season. I think he had three forced fumbles as well. He didn't return one for a touchdown. I mean, he is an absolute beast. Wisconsin is becoming linebacker you. So maybe, just maybe, <laughs> they are though. They are. Just look around the league. Maybe, just maybe, or fine, under unheralded linebacker you. Maybe, just maybe, um, it's a situation where they're looking to clear cap space for a big move. That's what I thought immediately. Like, are they going to be the team that makes the deal for Deshaun Watson? Is this the first domino that falls? We'll see in a couple other moves like this, and then boom, they trade for Watson. Because whoever trades for Watson is going to take on a big cap hit immediately. Well, that's um, my that's my point. I just feel like there's this, there's probably something else to this, whether that be somebody on the depth chart that they that they like, and they're like, okay, we like Kyle Van Noy, but he doesn't fit into what we want to do at this moment right now. So then they moved on from him. Again, if, it, if we're going to relate it back to the New York Giants, if the Giants were to sign him, we would acknowledge the fact that that happened, but I would imagine that Dave Gettleman, Joe Judge, and the Giants coaching staff has just a little bit more insight than what we're able to collect on that specific situation. But it comes down to money. Like, What, what would the Giants be able to offer him? Will other NFL teams offer someone like Kyle Van Noy a, uh, a more than what the Giants can offer, and I would imagine they probably would, right? Maybe. I think it's not a guarantee because I don't think he's going to fit every system. Mm-hmm. I think for starters, as you've seen throughout his career, he was ultimately potentially a bust at the beginning, and then the Patriots kind of turned him into the player that he is. And again, he was very productive with the Dolphins, similar system to the Patriots. But how many teams are running this kind of system? The Giants, the Patriots, the Dolphins, the Ravens. Um, who else am I missing here? I mean, but he could fit into, a, I would say, like a Pittsburgh maybe or something mm. like that as well. I, I don't know if he would fit into a, a defensive mind that, that can't kind of utilize his ability as a blitzer. And that's kind of where he ended up going when Detroit drafted him out of BYU. Right. And I think it was the second round, yeah, selection 40. He was kind of pigeonholed into that off-ball linebacker role and just weren't getting that much out of him. He labeled a bust, ends up going to New England, just like several other players in the past, and they end up extracting value out of him because like, okay, let's use him on the edge sometimes, use him in a more versatile way. And that's what we love about Patrick Graham. So yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point though, Dan, I guess when you when you consider it, because maybe he wouldn't fit everywhere. So maybe he looks at Joe Judge and he's like, I would go play for him. And I think I could be a leader on that defense. I can go play with Logan Ryan. And exactly. that would be awesome from that standpoint, but obviously would have to be at the right price. Yeah. And I think those factors will potentially come into play for his decision. He's 30 years old. He's turning 31. Like you said, his market might not be as hot as it used to. He's still going to be getting guaranteed. He's still getting money from that deal he signed with the Dolphins. So financially he may be in a better spot than he would be previously, or most players would be in, in this time of year when they're cut or, you know, released kind of out of the blue and not expecting it. And so all the things he said about Joe Judge in the past and the fact that I think he is a really nice fit for Patrick Graham's system leads me to believe he could potentially make, that he could potentially be brought onto the Giants. Now, there's one added value to the potential of signing Van Noy. If there is nothing weird going on and if he's, you know, fully healthy and still ready to contribute, it's that if you sign Van Noy and let's say you let Dalvin Tomlinson walk or more so if you let Leonard Williams walk because Leonard Williams is going to cost a lot is going to get a much bigger deal on the open market than a Dalvin Tomlinson if they were to let one of those two walk signing Van Noy doesn't count against their compensatory pick formula so if the Giants do strike out with the big receivers and if the Giants don't go after a big edge they could potentially stand to gain a compensatory third round pick by making moves like signing a Van Noy and signing any of these released players because the players who you sign that were released, 
Again, not the players who are unrestricted free agents, the players who were released do not count against the compensatory pick formula. So again, it all kind of depends if the Giants are aggressive or not in free agency, if they let a Leonard Williams type walk, but even if they only resign one of Leonard Williams and Dalvin Thompson, if Dalvin, let's let's say they resign Leonard, if Dalvin can get a big deal on the market, that could work into their compensatory pick for them. They could get a third round pick back for Dalvin, maybe a fourth, but potentially up to a third, depending on how teams view Dalvin across the NFL. And I have a good feeling he's going to be viewed very well. His tape speaks for itself. Obviously, he plays a position that's not really coveted by a lot of teams, but all it takes is one team. I mean, who did the Bengals sign from the Texans last year to a massive Dwayne Reader or DJ Reader? It was DJ Reader. And Dalvin Thomas is a much better player than DJ Reader. I know they're both noses, but Dalvin Thomas is a much, much better player, and he's just as young and you know has just as much upside, in my opinion. And Michael Pierce ended up going to yes. the Vikings. He opted out. And yeah. then there was also Javon Hargraves, a little bit different type of player. Hargraves a little different. Yeah, yeah, he ended up going to Philly. He got a nice deal as well. And that's probably the ballpark of what Dalvin Thomas right. will be looking right. for, like a Javon Hargrave type of contract. Yeah, so it kind of depends. So I'm always going to be interested in guys who are cut because they don't count count against the common story pick formula. It's literally a strategy that Baltimore has been laughing at the NFL with for the last five, ten years. For ten, ever since Ozzie Newsom got there and created it, they don't sign. And Philly has done a lot of that too, by the way, if you keep an eye on it. There's, there's but Baltimore is the king of it. They literally only sign free agents who are cut. And they get good players who are cut, and then they always end up with an extra third or fourth round pick. It's not just Baltimore, sorry. New England has that too. But adding that free third or fourth round pick is how they build depth through the draft on cheap rookie contracts that are 400 or 500K against the cap for four straight years. It's how you win in the NFL. You build through the draft, and free draft picks are as good as it gets. So I'm intrigued by, by Van Noy if they feel like he can be a massive upgrade, and again, if they feel like they're not in the market for a big time edge or a big time receiver. So definitely something to keep an eye on. We'll see what happens there. One other thing I wanted to go over before we dive into the prospect profile for Panay Seawall. A little stat I saw on Twitter, and I wanted to get your take on this, Nick. Now, it's not apples to apples. It's a stat from college football. But Sport Source Analytics, which is a pretty interesting account that I've stumbled into, I think has some really good stats analytics broke down the top 10 college football teams over the last three years that had the highest percentage of manageable third down plays. That's five yards or less on third down. Here's where they ranked nationally in points per possession. 21st, 13th, 92nd, 34th, 25th, 17th, 53rd, 54th, 81st, and 45th. Now here's a look at the top 10 teams over the last three years that ran the lowest percentage of third down plays, meaning they had the fewest third downs on offense per game, per possession. They ranked 2nd, 1st, 28th, 14th, 5th, 32nd, 69th, 3rd, 78th, and 6th. So 2nd, 1st, 14th, 5th, 3rd, and 6th were in the range of outcomes there versus the highest over there, or the highest on for the teams that ran the highest percentage of third and short situations, considered five yards or less, were 17th was the best, or 13th was the best, 17th, 21st, and then it goes into the 50s and the 80s. And so the point I'm trying to make here, I think this analytics, this stat, this study that they did does a great job of showing is the whole concept, I'll call it the Jason Garrett concept, he's not <laughs> the only one, there are plenty of coordinators like him, if I did a deep study in the NFL, I'm sure we'd uncover more. 
But the concept of trying to create 10 yards and three downs and get yourself into a third and manageable situation. And a lot of the times when you're watching this Giants offense on film, you notice just how constant this is from a theory standpoint in his system. There's so many second down calls that are designed to create a third and short. There's so many first down calls that are designed to create a second and short. And then you find the Giants in these situations where they're taking, they're trying to string together these 15-play, 99-yard drives for touchdowns, and they bog down at the end. They turn the ball over. They get stopped in the red zone and forced to kick a field goal, or they are forced to go for a fourth down in the red zone. They don't convert. And this study just shows, man, the teams that aren't putting themselves in third-down situations, teams that are trying to score on first and second down, teams that are trying to create big plays on first and second down, are the teams that are scoring the most points per, per possession. By far, it's not even close. It's not, these aren't even in the realm of closeness here. So my question for you, Nick, is what do you make of this kind of analytics, this kind of study? It just shows you that teams that are willing to air it out, take risks, and try to develop more explosive plays on the earlier downs are teams that tend to have more opportunity, or not even just opportunities, but just tend to score more points. And you can see it just by this list that you laid out. I mean, first, second, fifth, third, those those teams aren't necessarily seeing third down because yeah. they're not pl- play calling to get to third down. They're play calling to score points. And that's their that's everyone's overall objective, but there's different philosophies to get to that objective. And obviously, these teams are doing it in a more aggressive manner, but it's successful. Yeah, I think you nailed it best. Everybody's goal is to score points and create chunk plays, but there's different ways to do it. And ultimately, I think, would you be in agreement that Garrett's philosophy is certainly get 10 yards on three plays? It definitely seems so. I mean, th- Based are, on the play calling. I yeah, think. and there are times he tries to do shots. He, yep. He'll go out with the, uh, oh, it's the second or it's the third drive. We're going to go with that play action pass over the top, and usually it gets snuffed out, which is unfortunate. I mean, he doesn't always do it. He does deviate sometimes, but overall the philosophy is a little bit vanilla, and I would like it to be a little bit more aggressive when you don't expect it. That's what we saw with Freddie Kitchens in that Cleveland exactly. game. Exactly. We talked about, oh, wow, there's a – different play calls you see him gassing some routes he's showing one thing on one drive the next drive he runs something Mm -hmm. off of that to be manipulative to the defense and Garrett does that Garrett's not an idiot but it's just not consistent enough I think Garrett just kind of rests on his laurels and he's like we're going to get the third down we're gonna get this on this we're gonna run the ball on first down on second down we might do a little pass to the flat to try to get the third and short instead of kind of taking more risks and making more of those shot plays trying to be a bit more explosive with the offense which is something that I feel like all Giant fans want to see I know I want to see it I know you want to see it hopefully we see it in 2021 I'm not overly optimistic hopefully the uh what is it the cheetah changes its stripes yeah and i don't think it's something all giants fans should want to see i think based on this study alone and common sense watching football hopefully what you've learned from listening to us it's something we need to see it's not want it's need you can't be an offense that tries to get 10 yards in three plays and expect to win in the nfl right now you're putting yourself at a massive disadvantage and like nick said my i have lesser problem with the show one thing and do another i actually think garrett does a decent job of that that's not his issue he actually does do a lot of like show a formation and then run and then later in the game pass off that same formation it's more of the issue of the early shots and and the consistency of how often he wants to get into those third and short situations it's not just the short passes to the flat on second downs i mean the giants under garrett 
ran the ball on second and long more than all but 20, I think the sixth most in the entire NFL. Pat Shermer was obviously one. We remember that. Always. Anyone who's listened to the Giants, Big Blue Bander Vargas, knows how often that happened. But when you're running the ball on second and 10, philosophically, you're trying to get yourself into a third and manageable situation. When your real goal on second and 10 should be to try to create a chunk play. On all honesty, the best teams are trying to create chunk plays at all times. It's not always there for them, so they can then check down, which is why you see a lot of good offenses have those underneath drags or a, a design check down into space for the running back if the shot play is not there. But you should be always trying to read the defense high to low. You can't read a defense high to low when you're handing the ball off on second and long. And when you're running four curls, it's very hard to read a defense high to low as well because there are no routes breaking high. So for me, I know there's been a lot of discussion about how the Giants are adding Pat Flaherty. They're going to let Freddie Kitchens have a bigger role. And like Nick said, we love what we saw from Kitchens from a play calling standpoint. Again, he was running Garrett's crap system, but he made it he did the best job he could with it because like Nick said, there were a lot of times he surprised us with pass calls on rundowns and run calls on pass downs and taking shots in different times. And he did that with Colt McCoy, by the way. So and he was completely hamstrung by his quarterback. But the problem is, even if Kitchens has a bigger role in designing the offensive system and they find new plays and different concepts that they didn't have and even if Flaherty plays a role because people are talking about that Garrett's still the one calling the plays in game and no matter what system he's running my concern with Garrett is that his philosophy his overall philosophy will still be to get them into third and manageable situations and to try to get 10 yards on three plays and if that's your philosophy man you're just never going to be I'm never going to be a fan of you and I don't think you're ever going to build any kind of amazing offense and I know people say what about those Dallas offenses he had all the way back in 2010 well the game was different back then the NFL game was a lot different and he had Tony Romo who most Giants fans underrate the hell out of most NFL fans underrate the hell out of I mean Tony Romo to me was one of the better quarterbacks of the last decade I stand by that statement he was basically Russell Wilson before Russell Wilson to me maybe not as accurate on the deep ball maybe more turnover prone than Russell Wilson but very similar in a lot of other ways, especially from an arm talent standpoint and from the ability to create outside of structure. Extend plays. Tony yeah. Romo was so good at extending plays. And as another thing Garrett's offense always had was that big-bodied X type of receiver. We talk about that a lot. It's something the Giants might actually attempt to try and get. And there's the whole argument, well, do we go and we draft someone like Jalen Waddle? because he can't be the extra and I, I think that's nonsense I think someone like Jalen Waddle surpasses that you got to add talented playmakers despite the fact that they might be five foot eleven instead right. of six two and the whole x thing you could be a five foot eleven x receiver you're just a boundary receiver on the line of scrimmage is basically right. what it means I feel like that is something that is misconstrued a lot too yeah, yeah I think you're spot on and I think if there's I, I stand by this if Kenny Galladay does hit the market I think the Giants are gonna make a big time play at him I don't think they're as hamstrung by the cap as some people think. I think they're completely <laughs> understand yeah. that the cap is fluid and they have what tons of cap space unlo- un- un- unveiling in 2022 and 2023. So I'll be interested to see if that ends up happening. Because again, Tate will come off the books. Seitler will come off the books next year. Solder will be all off the books next year. And really at that point, you're only paying Barkley, Shepard, potentially a Galladay type. Ingram will probably be gone at that point and not counting that $8 million against the cap as well. Solder will be on the books, though, next year, but he'll yes. more than likely be released because he'll be in such a little dead cap hit on the Giants. Galladay would be an Smaller idea. cap. I yeah. meant smaller on the books. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Galladay would be a, would be an excellent uh, addition to this team as that X type of receiver. Waddle, if the Giants were to add someone like that, I would imagine he would be more of a Z and you would put him in a slot and right. you would mismatch him. You'd use him in a creative fashion. I mean, you could put that guy... You watch some of... Uh, 
what Sark did with him. You put him in the backfield and you have him run like running back wheel routes and stuff and be like, huh, have fun. Have fun safeties or linebackers trying to cover this guy from the middle of the field. And I would hope Jason Garrett would do that. But uh, I guess that remains to be seen right now. I think I think he would. I think he would, to be honest. Imagine having Saquon Barkley and Jalen Waddle on the same offense. That would be fun if if <laughs> if Garrett utilized them correctly. I remember back when the Giants drafted, I believe it was Saquon Barkley. They had just drafted Evan Ingram the year before in 2017. Mm-hmm. They had Odell Beckham still on the roster, so it was still early. It was what right after 2018. I remember Beckham was like the obvious pick. We got to get Barkley. Um, and I did a graphic for 24-7 Sports, and I put them up, and it was I put their height, all of their heights, their weight, and their 40 time. And it was out of control. Ingram had a 4-4-1 at like 235, and I didn't know at the time you know, what he was going to end up becoming for the Giants, which is a terrible football player. I mean, and not terrible, but a pretty mediocre receiver. Barkley, who was running a 4-4 flat, I think, at 230 or something insane like that, 235. And then Beckham, who had, you know, 441 or 443, I believe, at his height weight. And it's just like, how do, does anyone stop this offense? Like, if you're a great coordinator, you have three people who can move like that in space, you should be able to design an elite offense. And it never came to fruition under Eli Manning. I mean, the back end of Eli's career. Again, a big problem, something I felt prone to even back then, was not understanding just how important the offensive line is and how meaningless it is to have skill players like that if you don't have an offensive line. And so it just never came to fruition, and obviously Ingram never developed. But I just remember thinking about like those concepts. That's why it always scares me when even and I like Waddle a lot. I haven't seen much of him. We haven't got to him much, but I do like him a lot, Nick. But it always scares me just the the the, the skill players because it doesn't only require. I feel like it's not that it just requires so much from the play calling and the offensive coordinator. It requires a lot of timing with the quarterback too because he's got to be able to get the ball into the spot where that receiver is going to be on time and he's not used to that kind of speed and that kind of playmaking and i don't know i just feel like sometimes you see them turned into gadget guys getting screens and quick hitters in their first year so i don't know i I like waddle there's no doubt about it we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we'll see what happens when we get to his evaluation. But I, I am, I do tend to kind of feel like those quick, small skill position players at least are somewhat of a red flag scare for me. Yeah, I know you said that before. And two, two people stopped that offense. You asked how, yeah. how could this offense not be excellent? And their names were Eric Flowers and Bobby Hart. Yeah, yeah, that was not a great plan by former Giants regime, but it is what it is. But yeah, we'll we'll get to Waddle here shortly, though, as the draft gets closer. All right, well, that was a long intro. Let's talk a little bit about Penny Seawall. So 
that probably not the same pronunciation I had last time. So before we get into how is the correct way to pronounce his name, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. I'm going to dive right into this profile. Like any good team, hiring the right employees for your front office is just as important as recruiting the best players for the game. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. Only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with BlueWire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more but that's bwhustle.com slash join all right panay sawal let's start with the facts consensus four-star recruit six foot five 325 i put 325 to 345 as his weight because i read an article that i'm going to pull up from his coach mario cristobal that says that we played him between 325 and 345 during his time with oregon and by the way Six of five, three between three twenty-five and three forty-five, at nineteen years old, moving like a tight end out there. So we'll get to the movement skills soon, but let's first go over some more facts. His uncles, Isaac Sapoanga, you might know him, Richard Brown, both NFL players. He's got NFL bloodlines. His brothers both play at Nevada and Utah right now. His ninety-five point eight Pro Football Focus grade in twenty nineteen was the single highest grade for a tackle in PFF history. He allowed zero sacks two hits and five hurries literally seven total pressures and only two hits and no sacks on 491 pass block snaps he was 330 between 330 and 345 pounds as a 19 year old moving like a tight end in space out there he led pff in what their stat they determined as big time blocks in 2019 and with 13 big time blocks now that's a little bit aided by the system he played in there was a lot of screens there was a lot of perimeter plays design and he has the athleticism to get out to the edge and just destroy defensive backs and linebackers but the the fact the matter is he put it all together he put it on tape and he accrued those stats so what are your what are your favorite things about sawal let's start with the strengths 
Alright, yeah, Sewall, he's one of the more natural and imposing offensive linemen with his combination of size, length, athletic ability, his lateral movement skills are excellent as his change of direction, short area burst, ability to kick into space, he has fluid hips, quick feet which help him with mirroring and tight quarters when he has to pick up stunts and adjust himself in that timely type of manner. He's very good at getting to the outside shoulder of defenders in reach block situations on outside zone, something that they run a little bit up there in Oregon and they also run a lot of uh, pulling and stuff like that he was always pulled in the space like you said and he also has these vice grip of hands that you'll love to see he uses superior core and lower body strength to kind of out position when he is on the edge to kind of seal defenders even five techs bigger guys doesn't have to be smaller guys kind of turn them and seal them where he wants to go he does a good job firing off the ball and using violence to just maul defenders in base situations while showing that impressive lower body and lower leg drive on down blocks to clear paths as well. So in all those run situations, you see a lot of quality things. He has great hands, impressive grip strength, power. Like I said before, with the mirroring and pass protection, it's very, very smooth, fluid, seems natural. He has a tendency to gain inside control and pull linemen to his breastplate, effectively limiting their space and not allowing them to move whatsoever. Essentially, like, smell my damn breath. That's how close he pulls these dudes to them. Hopefully, he doesn't have any kind of halitosis or anything like that. But he also employs a very nice snatch and trap. When he stalemates linemen, they become complacent. So basically what he does is they're complacent. They're just kind of standing there. He'll take that outside arm and he'll just snatch really quickly the defender's inside arm and the guy will fall and then he'll fall on top of him. The guy finishes blocks in an excellent manner. He also handles bull rushes well. He's able to resync his hips, generate another anchor to help stonewall opposing power rushers. And I also really like how competitive he is. It's kind of evident on his film. You see when he makes a mistake, he's really, really pissed off. When a big play happens, he's really, really happy. And now his technique isn't always the cleanest, but he can run block. He can pass protect like a top five player in the draft, which that's what he should be. And that's what ultimately I think he will be. I think he'll go to Cincinnati, but anything can happen. Yeah, anything can happen, but he's not a perfect prospect. I think that's kind of what people, what, what I, well, not people are coming around to, but the reason why he might be potentially on the board for the Giants at 11, or, and we'll get to this possible scenario, might start to slip into that 6, 7, 8 range, which I would think would be intriguing in my mind for the Giants. We'll get to your opinion on that. Is that he's not a perfect prospect? Yes, he was described last year as a generational type offensive tackle prospect but I think as people dig a little bit more into his film and as they take into account some things that I'm going to ask you about and and question you about later including his competition level which was not high not high at all in the Pac-12 and the offense he played in which again limited his true pass snaps I'm sorry pass set snaps which we'll get to as well do you view or how would you break down his weaknesses on tape I think you just mentioned those and obviously opting out of the 2020 season is something that teams are always going to have to weigh in to the equation but throughout his film I mean his his techniques seemed a bit lazy to be honest and I don't think it's a lack of trying or that he's lethargic or that he doesn't care it could just be that he wasn't challenged all that often, to be honest. But there were reps where I didn't see him consistently drive through contact, mostly on the backside of plays, backside of runs. There were also times where he just trusted his length and strength to win against Pac-12 edge rushers, and his technique set-wise and receiving the block-wise wasn't always the greatest. And look, man, like his hands, they have pop. Like The tape don't lie, but that pop would sometimes deviate from the superb manner that he's kind of capable of executing. It just seemed like he would catch defenders at times with little use of his superior upper body strength. 
And also from a set perspective, like you said, he, he wasn't always doing these traditional sets. And from a flame, uh, framing block perspective, he would at times not move his feet with his body. And I would ask myself, like, why isn't he kicking out? Why is he leaning a bit? And again, this is an extreme nitpick territory for me right now. It's not consistent with most of his tape because he is a very, very superior type of prospect, but I do believe it should be acknowledged. His sets are usually fine, when uh, the sets that Oregon asked him to do, and it's not a hindrance to his effectiveness. I mean, but like, sometimes you just want to see crispness all the time, and when you can get nitpicky, you can see like, oh wow, this guy has excellent feet, but why isn't it excellent on this play and that play and that play? So you just kind of nitpick a little bit. I mean, I, I think he's going to be a top five pick, like I said, and he deserves to be, and he's one of the best talents in this draft, but they're, it's not a 100% type of grade, which some people kind of act like he is. At least they have been since 2019. I think people are revisiting the tape and they're starting to nitpick like I just did, and I think those these are some things that they'll find once they kind of go through the, and parse through the tape, I should say. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's not just that people are starting to go back and nitpick. I also think, you know, some of it is groupthink in the draft community, in my mind. I mean, you see Daniel Jeremiah come out with his top 50. This shit happens all the time. <laughs> right? And he has Rashawn Slater listed as his number one tackle over Panessa Wall. And everyone's like, well, wait a second. Maybe Slater's the best tackle in the class. And it's like, all right, well, do your own work or don't come to the table with an opinion. Um, but as far as Sewall goes, I think what it comes down to is this. Is he Joe Thomas? No. But at the same time, is he more athletic than Joe Thomas was coming out? Yes. And so is he longer? Is he a better punch? Yes, yes. So, I mean, there's traits that he has. And remember, as we do this, and we'll say this with just about every prospect we evaluate, because in my mind, it's a huge, huge, huge piece of the puzzle. And that's projection, projecting them to the next level, projecting what they can become. And that's not just based on 40-yard dashes and combine numbers. Projection is based on the film. It's how you think they'll translate to their competition at the next level. And so as we talk about a player like Sewall, who was 19 years old when he was the single highest-graded offensive tackle in pro football focus history, and when he was moving like he was moving at 330 pounds at 6'5", again, at 19 years old, the fact that he is only, what, going to be tw- only 20 years old does spark my attention, does grab my attention, because I know what he can become with better coaching, with better technique with better attention to detail something like you said he's super competitive he's willing to put in the work that I think is obvious and so I wanted to touch on a little bit of what his former coach Mario Cristobal said about him because although I don't love to be the guy who subscribes to coach speak because which coach is going to say bad crap about their player with the exception of uh what's his name Joe uh, or Jed Jed whatever from 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 UCLA I'm forgetting his name the guy who talked crap about Josh Rosen before the before the 2018 draft what was his name Jed Fish who had problems with Josh Rosen but other than that what coach isn't going to wax poetic about his players but I'll read the quotes to you and you be the judge because to me it doesn't really sound like coach speak it sounds like someone who but really truly believes in this prospect to become one of the best players at his position in the NFL and so here's the quote Andrew Siciliano asked him, Cristobal, is Sewall the best tackle? He said, it's by far. It's not even close by any stretch. The film doesn't lie. He's the most explosive, the guy that has the most power. He plays with the most balance, heavy-handed, light feet, all things Nick just broke down. He can roll his hips. He plays high to low in the run game. He's always in phase and in balance in the pass game. He's the best one I've ever been around. And like you mentioned, 
He doesn't turn 21 until October. You're looking at a guy who's going to play for you for a long, long time. So let's fact check that to start. Any Anything you see about that first quote that you think was coach speak and not fact? No. I mean, <laughs> Pene Suel is uh, absolute studs, and he's 100% right about the age. Obviously, I think that's a huge part about this. This guy was dominating the college level, and yes, it's Pac-12. You know, edge rushers out there aren't exactly the cream of the crop. But no, I don't see much lies there. Now, I haven't gotten to Rashawn Slater's tape and a couple of the other tackles I really want to get to, so I can't say that Penny Suel is by far definitively better than them just because I haven't had my eyes on them yet, but I didn't see many lies there. Yeah, and he said it's not just the film itself. If you take a deep dive even into the film, it doesn't do justice how instinctive Penny really is. Cristobal said it's like he's been playing for 25 years the more you watch the more you realize he's not only a run blocker a pass blocker he's a weapon that we can use in the screen game in some of the toss and space running game getting him out in space being able to create explosive run games run games and screen gains this guy is the real deal I don't think there's a better player out there let alone better tackle he says that body he played anywhere from 335 to 355 pounds for us but it looked like he was carrying just 295 the way he runs the way he can change direction accelerate and decelerate he understands how to position understands leverage he's just a different species this guy is a completely different level player than i've been around and i believe he's just getting started yeah if i'm a west coast offensive lineman I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going to go play for some Mario Cristobal with that kind of <laughs> ringing endorsement. No, but he's right, though, man. I mean, Suell is very, very in control of his body, and I like how he brought up how he can accelerate and decelerate. I think that's really, really important, especially with what they wanted to do out there. Because there were plenty of plays where he kicked out to the field side and had to locate a cornerback. You know how difficult that is to do at 335 pounds? And he was doing it pretty well. He would chip the corner, throw him, and then, like, pivot totally swivel his hips into the inside in another direction locate the safety who's trying to undercut him and then knock him down i put up a clip on twitter of a touchdown run and it was very very impressive it was a play that was similar to that so i mean i I, (laughs) good job on cristobal to wax poetic about suel like that but i mean you you can see it on tape about how intriguing a player like suel really is but again like like I pointed out, everything is not as crisp as it could be, but I am being a little bit nitpicky. <laughs> no, I totally get it, Nick. And there will be some questions I'm going to have you answer in a few moments here. But I think what Cristobal says, not only is it check out, it's important to know why am I so excited about a player like Sewall. It's because of some of the things that he just said. He's very legitimately a weapon. He can be drafted to the Giants and serve as a weapon for them in the screen game and on some of their run plays they designed last year, especially early on the season before Saquon got hurt, that were designed to get to the edge, that were designed to get to the outside. You have a guy like that on your edge, on your, at tackle, and he can be a weapon for you as both a run and pass blocker. So it's not just about what he does in pass sets. It's not just about the traditional tackle. It's about his athleticism helping him reach a new level and helping him become a different kind of tackle for you, a weapon. Now, we talked all about Matt Pert's athleticism, but Matt Pert doesn't move in space like Panesa Wall. Matt Pert moves pretty smoothly. He's definitely an interesting prospect. We like him a lot, but they're different kind of movers in space. They have different kind of hands and power. They have different, not, it's not just the movement skills, it's the general 
power over on their different weights and body types. I mean, Matt Parrott is 6'7", 318 pounds. This guy, Sawal, might play at 340 when all set is sudden done and yet move like he's 290, like Cristobal said. So I'm extremely excited about this kind of prospect and the actual possibility of the Giants getting their hands on him. I wouldn't even, for me, I'll ask you later on as we get into this, but for me, it's a run to the podium type pick. I don't even care what anyone says really about it. I don't think that wide receiver is a bigger need than tackle personally so that knock that out i don't think you should ever be drafting for need anyway you should be drafting the best player as long as it fits a need and so i'll start here my question for you is this we'll start to nitpick a little with you nick and see where you stand so all had a dominant grade as a zone blocker but his power gap blocking grade was actually closer to average it was above average but it was closer to average than his dominant zone grade that's according to pro football focus now, would that be something that concerns you moving to a Giants offense, or do you believe he can project, because remember, this is a lot about projection, as a good fit in a Giants-type system? I think he could project in the Giants-type of system. I don't think from everything I saw, I would be overly concerned about him coming to Jason Garrett's offense and running power gap. He has the strength to do it. He has strength all throughout his body, in his lower half, in his core, in his upper body. He can pull. He has all the athletic traits to do all those things. So I'm honestly not overly worried about it. Okay, so check that one off the list. That's a good start because I ain't worried about it either. And... That gets me more excited about the potential of having him on the Giants. So here's the next one. Do you have any concerns about how screen-heavy Oregon's 2019 offense was? And if maybe Sewell was untested in true pass sets, like the ones he'll see at the NFL level? Yeah, I think it's logical to have concerns about that for sure, just because it's going to be a totally different transition. He's going to be executing different types of plays than what he's used to doing on a consistent type of level. So there are definitely concerns there, but none that would lead me to question selecting someone like Sewell at 11. I think it's definitely something that's teachable. He seems like he's a good kid. Obviously, his coach speaks glowingly of him, as we all just heard. So I'm not overly concerned from the standpoint that he can't learn it. It's just that he doesn't have as many reps doing it. So I think it's something you acknowledge something you weigh into the equation but for me it definitely wouldn't sway me from taking a player like him and to add to that we've seen tackles struggle early on in their transition to the nfl as they have to execute different kinds of blocks we saw it with andrew thomas we've seen it with plenty of players even matt Parrott. do you think having taken that year off and not having reps during the entire 2020 season at all will make him more of a risk at 11 if you're looking for an immediate contributor I think it does to some extent, but I also want to know who he's working with right now because yeah. there are so many True. amazing offensive line gurus out there like Big Duke and guys like that who work with a lot of these younger guys coming into the league, and I'm sure he's probably with someone like that, and that gives me more of a uh, a better feeling about the fact that he sat out the 2020 season. But like all those guys who opted out 2020, there's always going to be some sort of level of concern there. But again, Suell... That's not going to deter me, especially at 11. It wouldn't deter me at 5 if I was a Cincinnati Bengals or even before that. I mean, I even think the Jets who have Mekhi Becton, who just signed George Font, which you're not going to obviously prioritize Font over someone like Sewell. I think he's an option as well with the second pick, but that's also a trade-down situation. And there are a whole other situation. We could probably do a whole other podcast on the New York Jets and what they're going through. But to circle back, it wouldn't deter me from selecting Sewell. Do you have any concerns with the fact that he matches up against Pac-12? 
edges, and let's be completely honest, the Pac-12 has just a slew of atrocious edge rushers as far as the next level goes, as far as guys that make it to the next level. They don't have a single one that interesting. I mean, that's not, I shouldn't say they don't have a single one. Over the last five years, though, they haven't had too many big-time NFL contributors come out of that conference from the edge position. No, not too many. Uh, now, Jalen Phillips used to be at UCLA. Right. And then I like Joe Tryon, the kid from Washington. I think he could be a player, maybe somebody who will go over here in a couple weeks. But I, I think just on a consistent level, Suell wasn't seeing NFL type of guys or people who are going to transition into the NFL. So, yes, I think that has to be waiting because you don't know what he's going to be like against top type of competition. But nothing suggests from the tape I've seen that he's going to struggle in that area. Now, there's always a transition period. But again, I, it's not something that would deter me from selecting him. And again, that's where the projection comes into play. You have to project. That's part of this game. It's not just about looking at stats, looking at how they competed against college kids. It's a lot about the projection. Now, if he's there on the board at 11 by some weird string of events, is he a rush to the podium kind of pick for you? Or do you envision scenarios where there could be potential other players at other positions that you would still take over Sewell if he's there at 11? I wouldn't say it's rushed to the podium, but it, it's it's damn close. I would like to imagine that if he starts smoking weed like Laramie Tunsil did back in the 2015 draft and he falls, I don't think the NFL would allow him to even get to 11, let alone Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys. But let's say that he is there. Yes, I would imagine the Giants would want to go and make that selection. No, no, not the Giants. What would you do? Oh, what I do? Yeah. Yes, I, I would love to take someone like Penny Suell on the New York Giants. Yeah, he's a rush to the podium pick for me. I don't care if Waddle's there. I don't care if Pitts is there, who I like more than Waddle. I don't care if Chase is there, who I like more than Waddle and probably Pitts. He's a rush to the podium pick, and I'm not even sure if I'm going to end up liking Chase more than Pitts. We'll have to see. I love Pitts. Um, but he's a rush to the podium pick. Offensive tackle to me is a much, much, much better investment than wide receiver at all times. Offensive tackle to me makes a much, much, much bigger difference in wins and losses than wide receiver at all times. And offensive tackle to me is a much harder position to find than wide receiver. So to me, it's a no-brainer. Now, if something happens that seems a little bit more likely, and he starts to fall into that 7 to 10 range, is now that a time where you might consider trading picks to to acquire Sewell? I don't think the Giants are really in the position to do that right now. I would love to. I think in theory it sounds good, but the Giants just aren't in the position to do that. So no, I don't think so. I think you're going to let the board play out. If Sewell's gone, say Pitts is gone, say Waddle's gone, Chase is gone, all these guys are gone. The Giants can actually, Dave Gettleman, listen up, can actually entertain trading back and getting more kicks at the can which is something the Giants just do not do which is something Gettleman does not do but I would welcome that rather than kind of mortgaging a lot of picks to go up and and try to get Sewell I think that's where I stand on that that's fair I mean I think for me it would kind of depend on what they would have to give up in return and I know that's crazy for some of you to hear that I would even entertain the idea of trading up for any position but quarterback but that's how high I regard Sewell and again I ultimately I don't think any of this plays out I think the Bengals will simply take him with their pick and that's it said and done the Bengals aren't going to screw this up they take Sewell they put him there to protect Bur- Burrow and they're in great shape but if he is starting to fall a little bit, there's quarterbacks who go ahead of him yada yada someone makes a mistake of taking a receiver over to, over him etc etc then yeah i would actually consider it especially if they can just give up 
especially if there's a team who, let's say, loves what they saw on tape from a B.J. Hill, the only position the Giants have any depth at. Or I know it's funny. It's crazy to even think about. I was trying to think of other positions where this might be in play. There really isn't any. Safeties? Safeties. Maybe someone loves Parrot, had a big-time grade on Parrot, and you can dangle, like, Parrot and, and a late pick and move up. Like, you're, you're 11th, Parrot and a late pick, or you're 11th, B.J. Hill and a late pick. These seem unlikely, or... Your 11th, Evan Ingram, and a late pick. Because I don't love Evan Ingram, and i kind of rather have Caden Smith out there anyway, to be completely honest. So if some team likes Evan Ingram, those are the start-to-get-creative type of ideas. You know, you throw in Ingram, you throw in the 11, and maybe a late-round pick. Can that get you to move up three or four spots for Sewell? I'm starting to consider it because, to me, Sewell is going to be a hell of a player at the NFL level. And even if he's not, that doesn't make it a bad bet. The upside of a player like him is so high. So here's my hypothetical. The Giants are lucky enough to draft Sewell, and who knows where that would happen. But if they're lucky enough to do it, would you expect them to move him over to right tackle or Andrew Thomas over to right tackle? And then what would you do if you were in charge? I'd probably move Andrew Thomas over to right tackle, put Sewell on the left side. And I don't really have much to base that off of over other than the fact that Andrew Thomas had high-level SEC college experience on the right side. So you would imagine muscle memory, he would be able to relearn that and get going. But I think there is an argument like, hey, Sewell hasn't played in two years. Could he just kind of step in on the right side and transition since Andrew Thomas kind of found his side on the, uh, on the left? So I don't think it's a – I'm not definitely uh, – that Andrew Thomas should definitely move to the right, but I'd probably lean that direction right now. Yeah, we're lockstep on that one, Nick. I think part of the only reason I'd be a little hesitant is the fact that Thomas got all those reps at left tackle, and even though he's done right tackle before, he did it early on in his Georgia career. He's now had a lot of reps in a row at left tackle. He's made some progress there, and now you'd ask him to kind of switch that up. So that's not great, but then at the same time, with Sewall, you're also asking him to switch it up completely and learn right tackle. So either way, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And so ultimately, the highest upside to me is Sewall at left tackle, Thomas at right tackle, especially because we know Thomas can do it there. We don't know that Sewall can do it at right on the right side. So yeah, that would be my, my uh, move for it as well. And I think the interesting part about this too, Dan, is not a lot of people are talking about the Giants going off at the tackle in that first round. I think we mentioned it on the podcast over the last couple of times, but I think that's an actual, it, it could be a course of action. Now, do I think it's the primary? No. I think Dave Gettleman, it's going to be an explosive player. It's going to be a skilled position player. I think that's what it will ultimately be. But I still think we have to have some of these top tackles in our mind and start doing some podcasts on guys like Christian Darisaw and Rashawn Slater and some of these other top tackles, kind of uh, investigate them so we know their skill set if the Giants even end up trading down as a 16 or 17 and then selecting a player like that. Yeah, there's a lot of hypotheticals there. I feel like A, if the Giants trade down, B, if they're interested in tackle. Those are both things that mean you would be interested in. In my mind, good GMs are thinking about, can we potentially trade down? What would that look like? What would that mean? Can we take an offensive tackle? What would that look like? What would that mean? To me, David Gettleman is a little bit more of an ABC GM. He said early on he wants to establish a run game, so he drafted a million tackles, and he drafted Saquon Barkley, and he wanted to find a quarterback to replace Eli Manning, so he drafted Daniel Jones, and he wanted to protect the quarterback, so he drafted Andrew Thomas. Now he says he wants playmakers. So unless they do get Galladay in free agency— because it looks like Allen Robinson might get franchise tagged, and Galladay might as well, by the way. I think ultimately he will just ABC this thing, and and ABC is a poker term for those who don't know. It's people who play poker basically by the book, quote unquote, which is impossible to win. And if you don't use, if you know, I mean, it's not impossible to win if you're playing by the numbers, but if you're playing ABC style, it's uh, it's very difficult. Um, Ultimately, I I agree with you. Yeah. But I also feel 
that not even in an alternate universe, but I know Dave Gettleman has to keep Daniel Jones upright, and that has to be a priority because this guy is being pressured so damn much. And a lot of this does depend on how Dave Gettleman and the Giants view Matt Pear. They can view him very highly. They may not. I still have a lot of hope for him, but we have to see. So yeah. in that hypothetical situation, Giants would have added a Kenny Galladay or an Allen Robinson yes. or, I mean, Juju's name is getting floated out there. I'm not a huge fan of that, to be honest, personally. No, I don't really want to add a, a big slot receiver. Oh, it's a devastating yeah. idea to add Juju, unless they think he can win on the outside. Which I don't think he's done in his career. No. And he's only really had, I mean, he has had production, but it's always with all of these amazing pieces around him. I don't think he would be the savior of this Giants offense, to Juju be honest. would be a disaster type signing, and I guess he's been floated around because he might be the only big name that actually hits the market, because the Steelers are insanely unlikely to re-sign him based on their cap situation, and the fact that, like you said, he really hasn't been that good independent of Antonio Brown. He's basically just a big slot, which you don't want to give big money to, and doesn't really fix any of the Giants' problems. They already have a really good slot in Sterling Shepard, so yikes if that happens. Yeah, I, I, I would be pretty upset That's a that. That would be a that would be a remote control thrower, I think, for me. I think just at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's going to be either a Waddle, a Chase, or a yes. Pitts, or even Devonta Smith. I think we have to throw him in there too. I think any of the, I completely agree with you. It will be one of those playmakers. But that doesn't rule out tackle. That doesn't rule out Sertan no. or Farley, and that doesn't rule out Micah Parsons too. Who I think yes. that's another name that we have to go over. Yeah, they could still surprise us. They could still have their eyes on players and playmakers they believe can make a year one impact in in round two potentially they could still make a big free agent signing that really flips this thing over and it doesn't necessarily have to just be the guys we just mentioned the Allen robinson kenny galladay juju smith schuster remember last year james bradbury wasn't really talked about as a potential big time signing a guy who's going to get 18 19 million on the market he was handed that money by the giants and it paid off they took a big gamble on Bradbury, and it worked. They knew he would fit the system. He fit it even better than they could have expected. He actually out-earned his contract, which seemed impossible at the time, given how big it was. If they view Corey Davis potentially as that guy... Now, again, remember, a lot of people are down on Davis, but he's still a very young receiver, and he still has potential breakout. If they view Curtis Samuel as that type of guy... Remember, Dave Gettleman drafted Curtis Samuel... In my mind, Curtis Samuel is an extremely underrated receiver. I don't know if I love the fit because they have so many of these smaller receivers. I really want a big body receiver, which is also why it's kind of a crappy situation. Like, I like Watt a lot. I like Smith a lot as prospects, but neither are what I want. I want the Chase types prospect. You know, I want the big outside X. Just funny, too, because Chase is like barely six foot, but watching. No, the six film, one, six one, I think. I don't think so, no. man. There is a picture that surfaced of him, Devonta Smith. And Justin Jefferson. And Justin Jefferson is 6'2". And Justin Jefferson looked a good, like, two, two and a half Ooh. inches taller than Chase. He could come so in at, big, like, at like 5'11 and, like, 5'8 or something like that. But he just doesn't seem like that, man, because he's so physical, so strong at the catch point. He's probably listed at 6'1", is what I'm going to imagine. Yeah, I believe he was listed at 6'1". It's kind of like a Hakeem Nick 6'1", maybe. Remember, Hakeem Nix was listed as, quote-unquote, 6'1". He was also basically just a shade over 6 foot, and yet he played unbelievably big as well. And he also played bigger than the size. Dez Bryant, I believe, is kind of similar receiver. He might have been 6'2", at best. I think he's 6'2", Dez. Yeah, maybe, at best, but he might be a full 6'2". Remember, Hakeem Nix, by the way, ran a 4'6'3", just to show you how stupid the 40-yard dash is and how pathetically overrated it is. What's up with these big-bodied Hakeem? Keem receivers running slow at the combine. Hakeem Butler, everyone loved that oh, guy. Hakeem Butler didn't work out. That's a little different. That one didn't actually didn't work out. But yeah, so ultimately, again, like it's just a matter of fit, I think, for the Giants. Unfortunately, I think the guys who will be there are the guys I'm less enthused about from a size standpoint. And we'll see what happens. 
I think it's going to be pretty ABC with Gettleman. He said he wants to get playmakers. That's kind of the next step in his proverbial progression in his mind. So as long as they don't get one in free agency, they'll get one in the draft, I believe. I love how you sometimes speak about Dave Gettleman like he's a child. (laughs) That's how it feels to me. It honestly feels that way, watching this guy try to operate this franchise. I hate to say that. I know that's going to be – we may have to even edit that out. No, we won't edit that out. Or maybe we will, but we probably won't edit that out because it's not, it's okay to be, in my mind, objective about what we've seen. I don't know why a lot of people view what he's done as something to be accomplished, you know, something to be proud of, something to be celebrated. I think the fans who are objective view it the same way that we do, kind of like, this guy really needs to improve. He had a good free agency last year, good for him. Hopefully he had a good draft, kind of depends on McKinney and Thomas developing, continuing to develop. But he's had top six picks all three years. He had an extra first-round pick from the Beckham trade, an extra third-round pick. He dumped a third on Sam Beal, an early third on Sam Beal. I mean, the things he's done, it's just... It's not like I want to talk about him as a child. He's a, he knows more about football than me than I'll ever know in my life, and probably you as well. But he also has been around the game for a very long time, and he's still using principles that worked 20 years ago that may not work anymore, that may not... Or may still work, but may not need to be prioritized. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's fair, too. And I'm higher on Gettleman than you are. Uh, I don't think that's a, a secret by any means. But it's just, you look at some of the younger GMs, the guys like Les Snead, Howie Roseman, some of these younger guys, they have different methods to, to building rosters, to acquiring talent. Like, even s- simple stuff like you said, like picking up guys after they were released so they don't count against the compensatory formula for the next season. Trading late round picks fifth round picks for guys like Calais Campbell and stuff like that some of the younger GMs are a little bit more willing to try newer tricks and some of these older guys just uh, are a little bit more set in their ways yeah and I think it's never more pronounced than it is during the draft with Gettleman because you know in his career he's never traded down he's all oftentimes traded up he believes a lot in trading up because he kind of has a viewpoint of the draft like I can outscout the rest of these guys. It doesn't matter if these 31 guys are getting paid the same amount as I do or more than what I'm getting paid. I can outscout them. I can outbeat them. And ultimately it's a tough it's a tough bet. It's a tough gamble for me to get on board with. And I know a lot of you think that me and Nick are too harsh on Gettleman or too critical of him, but I think in our in our minds at least it's objective analysis and I hope you can view it as that because in our minds you have to be a little more open to the idea that the draft isn't in a perfect process. You can't outsmart these guys. You can't beat out the 31 other GMs. And ultimately, if you look at some of the things that someone like Chris Ballard has done, Colts GM, who's widely regarded as one of the better GMs, he's kind of taken the opposite approach. He's viewed the draft as a crapshoot, and he has traded back, and he has had 10-plus picks in the last three drafts. And if you look at that roster building, all the depth they have and all the talent they've accumulated at all positions but quarterback, which is obviously holding them back, and you have to have a quarterback in the NFL to have any chance, but with the exception of that position, he's done a really good job by taking more chances, by having more dart throws. Even if you look at just what Gettleman did last year, which I thought was his best year by far in the draft, he had so many picks on day three that the Giants actually were able to hit on some day three picks. And they didn't hit on all of them, but that's the point. The point is you have more chances, you're going to have a better chance to hit on one or two. And so there's just a lot of process issues. I have a Gettleman that I don't think will be resolved. But again, he can out, <laughs> if he has good evaluations and he hits another home run in free agency, the Giants can certainly improve. So we're definitely still potentially optimistic about where this can go. And we'll take it from there. We were planning to get to some questions on this podcast. So there are a lot of questions that flowed in from you guys on iTunes. You guys are finally taking iTunes to help us get to 500 reviews. 
We're very close. We're at 481 ratings on iTunes, and there's like four or five new questions in there. We're going to actually pause on those. Though. We're going to do those on the next Prospect Profile podcast because of the Van Noy discussion, because of the analytics win over at the beginning. This one ran a little long. We don't want to keep you here forever. We still want to keep these. The goal of these draft profiles was to keep them under 30 minutes that was our first goal and then some started to go 40 45 and so this one's ranging uh you know starting to hit that close to that hour mark so we don't want to keep you for an hour for draft profiles especially not in early march so we'll end it there but for all you who did put a question who did submit a question to itunes give us a rating and review thank you we will answer those questions on the next pod for the rest of you if you want to get your questions answered the best way to do it is give us a rating and review on itunes subscribe to the podcast on itunes download the podcast on itunes all of those things are necessary for us and make sure you please follow us on Instagram at NYBigBlueBanter. That's NYBigBlueBanter on Instagram. It's literally a simple click, a follow button on Instagram. It will make a big difference and help us in so many ways. Otherwise, we'll talk to you soon. Have a great rest of your week. And we will be back with another Prospect Profile very shortly. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.